0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our special series, Christmas Unplugged, The Truth Retold from Matthew chapter one and two. Today, Dr. Newfeld will be talking about searching for the king of the world. So open your Bible to Matthew two and let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld.
1: I'm fascinated by the nature of global Christianity. I have been for a long time. What especially fascinates me is that if you go to some of the historic Christian lands, well, especially those in Europe, you'll find these massive cathedrals all but empty. No one goes there anymore, and I think very few people there care. Many people in Western Europe actually think that Christianity is dying, but it's not. What is happening is that Europe is dying. But the Christian faith, well, today, we're living in the greatest advance of the Christian faith in history. In the most unlikely of places like China, like Iran, like Northern India, like Cuba, Indonesia, many other places where you might least expect it, you find a Christian movement growing at a startling pace. Sometimes, under intense persecution and extreme social pressure not to convert, people are finding in Jesus everything they ever wanted. People we might historically expect to see Jesus are turning away in indifference, and people who seem at the outset the most unlikely of all people, are coming to Christ in ever-increasing and even in staggering numbers. That's why one of my favorite accounts surrounding the birth of Jesus is the account of the Magi. That's because of all the people you would never expect to find them seeking out the infant king. So let's read Matthew's description of the event. You know, the first Christmas brought together the most unusual people, all with different agendas, all surrounding the birth of Jesus. Let's look at each one of them in turn. The first and most obvious group are the Magi. I know that you've heard of them referred to as the three wise men. In fact, they are called wise men in the text I've read. Some people have called them the three kings, but in actual fact, the Bible doesn't tell us how many there were, and it does not tell us if they were kings or wise men. In fact, it simply calls them Magoi or Magi. It's a root word from which we get the word magician. The most likely answer to who these people are is found in Daniel 2 verse 2, which tells us that in the court of the king of Babylon, there were somewhere around 600 BC, it says, so the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. Back in Daniel's time, each one of these groups of people focused on a specific practice of Babylonian occult religion. In all probability, the people that surrounded the imperial court of Babylon were very shrewd people who were able to do miracles either by deceit, that is, by sleight of hand, or by some demonic power. The magicians were one of the four groups of people who surrounded the king. Men who belonged to the priestly class were educated in the sacred writings of the occult and specialized in conjuring up spells. But by the time of Christ, matters had changed. Babylon had been defeated and was no longer a world power. They no longer had a feared king. They no longer had four specialized groups, that is, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, but they had magi which had become a generalized term for people who were interested in dreams, astrology, magic books, thought to contain mysterious references to the future. Some of them were liars and cheats, and others seemed to have been on a legitimate quest for truth, but they were clearly going about it in the wrong way. Now, several things ought to be noted about this group, and the first is this. The Bible condemns their activity. Leviticus 20, verse 6 says, If a person turns to mediums and wizards whoring after them, I will set my face against that person, and I will cut them off from among his people. And then second, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied that this group would not be able to save Babylon in the day of their disaster. In Isaiah 47, verses 13 and 14, speaking of Babylon, Isaiah says, You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them come forth and save you, those who divide the heavens and gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come to you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. And so forth it goes. Indeed, that's precisely what happened. When Babylon fell, it was... Daniel, a prophet of God who predicted the fall of Babylon, not their occultic priests. The ancient magi had been completely ineffective. Daniel, the prophet of God from Israel, had discredited them, and with that, their power was severely limited. But a third thing ought to be mentioned about this group, and it is the influence that Daniel must have had on them. Daniel 2 verse 48 says, The king gave Daniel high honors and a great many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. You know, I don't think we can underestimate the effect that Daniel and other godly Jews had on this group. Some hated Daniel, no doubt. And others admired him and learned from him, but in time, some of the magi must have come to be interested in the God of Israel, and you have to assume that some of them had become fascinated by the Messiah, that a king of Israel would rule the earth, and furthermore, they had come to learn from a prophecy in Numbers 24, verse 17, which said, "...a star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel." So this company of men saw an unusual star and would have concluded that the star was the sign spoken of in Numbers 24. They must have had a written or oral memory of the teaching of Daniel, perhaps even were in possession of the Old Testament scriptures, or at least some of them. They knew of the hope of the Messiah, and so they assumed that a star in the heavens was showing them that this unique day of the Messiah must be at hand. You know, the Bible doesn't say that they followed the star to Jerusalem. It says that they only later followed the star to Bethlehem. I'm I'm going to come back to that point. I'm assuming that the Magi convened a meeting to talk about this and decided they must go to Israel. What else could they do? They, They had to go to Jerusalem to investigate the matter further. Now, we don't know how many of them there were, but we assume a great company. And when they showed up in Jerusalem, Matthew tells us that all Jerusalem was troubled. There was a decidedly heavy and frightening tension that settled on that place. So why was that? Well, that brings us to our second player, and that second player is King Herod. Historians call him Herod the Great. Herod had been appointed as king over the Jews in about 40 BC by the Roman Senate. He was not a Jew, in fact, he was an Idumean, which means he was a descendant of the Edomites or a descendant of Esau. Because he wasn't a Jew, the Jews never accepted him, despite the fact that he had built their temple. Herod was an exceptionally brilliant leader, but he was also an extremely cruel man. He was willing to do whatever it took to hold on to power. He had married a Jewish wife, but he had her murdered, and he murdered his two sons from this Jewish wife. He also regularly removed high priests contrary to Jewish law, and whenever a high priest did something that upset him, he simply deposed him and put someone else in his place. He had one of the Jewish high priests murdered when he suspected that he was stirring up the Jews against him. You know, tradition tells us that when Herod was lying on his deathbed, he and his paranoia believed people would not mourn for him. And and by the way, his death would have occurred perhaps even less than a year after the incident with the Magi. So it occurred to Herod that the Jews would be celebrating his death, so he had his men gathered together, some from the city of Jericho, and confined them under guard. And the minute Herod breathed his last, his men slaughtered these men of Jericho so the Jews would mourn and not celebrate when he died. You know, Herod was equal to a Stalin or a Paul Pot or a Hitler. All these were mercilessly cruel dictators. Augustus Caesar said it was better to be Herod's pig than his son. And that's why when the Magi arrived, Matthew tells us that all Jerusalem was disturbed and no doubt they were. Such an event could have easily triggered a bloodbath in the city. Now, the third group of people that are mentioned are the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Technically, there was only one chief priest, but after a person stopped being the chief priest, he still held the the title, and so it is also accurate to say there were chief priests, although only one of them would have been serving. So all the chief priests of the past were there, the teachers of the law were there, and so were the Pharisees. So these groups, the chief priests, would have been Sadducees, and the Pharisees would have come to that meeting with deep theological disagreements. Those two groups hardly tolerated each other. Well, Herod would have known that and brought all this group of of desperately opposing people side by side with each other. And what an amazing meeting must have happened in that day in Jerusalem. You can feel the tension in the air, and you wonder what's going to happen next.
0: More when we come back. The birth of Jesus brought people together. The Magi, Herod, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, all these people were waiting for the Messiah Jesus Christ to come into the world, although each of their stories ended differently. We'll talk more about that later. Thanks for listening today. It's December 24th, the day before we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Hopefully in these last few weeks, you've had a chance to prepare your heart for this joyous and significant time of year. Let me just reflect for a moment on the amazing prophecies we find in the Old Testament about Jesus coming to the earth. For instance, here's what the prophet Micah said, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days." Micah 5 verse 2. These and many more references provide us a rich foundation for understanding why we celebrate Christmas. Now let's return to the story of Jesus' birth with Dr. John Neufeld. Imagine the scene. They were the Magi who
1: were condemned by the law of God for their occultist connections. Then there was Herod, the mass-murdering king appointed by Rome. Then the Sadducees, who tried to appease Rome and were generally fairly wealthy. And the Pharisees, who were awaiting for a Messiah to overthrow the Roman Empire. The first Christmas really did bring together the most unusual of people, all with a different agenda surrounding the news these magi brought. And that really is the real story of Christmas. It still is today. It brings together seekers and sinners and rascals and evil men and people from discredited spirituality and people with false agendas. And that's precisely what Christmas always does. Christmas is not a sentimental journey in which everybody just loves everybody and has turkey together. Christmas is the news that God Himself, the ruler of the earth, has entered into this rebellious world. And that news will always be either hateful or it will be beautiful, and it will depend on who you are. So, Christmas, if it's rightly told, Christmas will always be the gladdest of news or the most difficult thing that we have ever heard. I remember a lot of years ago, I was a newly married man, and and, and I was also a student at the University of Saskatchewan. And back then, there was a man named Dr. Walter Martin, who was a great Christian preacher, and he was also an apologist. He had come to Saskatoon to lead a series of meetings on the truth of the Christian faith, and because of his fame at that point in time, the entire city seemed to be stirred up, and Dr. Martin filled the largest meeting place in the city. You know, most of the people that were there were young university students, just in the way that Kathy, my wife, and I were, and I remember that meeting well because Kathy, who was also at university at the same time, had a prof in her class who regularly mocked the Christian faith. It was a philosophy class, and and during that large meeting in which there was an open microphone in which questions were allowed after Dr. Martin's presentation, Kathy's prof, that well-known, popular, and fiery man, came forward. He was the first person at the mic, and everyone thought, wow, here goes the battle. And so he asked the question, Dr. Martin, if the Bible condemns astrology... Why is it that when the Magi found the Christ, they did it by astrology, the very thing that you say the Bible condemns? You know, everyone was quiet. The battle was about to begin, and the entire room was leaning forward. And then without even hesitating, Dr. Martin responded, well, sir, you obviously haven't read your Bible." The Bible says that the arising of a star gave the Magi a sign to go to Jerusalem, and there they found some theologians, and the theologians told them how to find the Christ. You know, I'll never forget that university prof's face. He was dumbfounded. Clearly, he hadn't anticipated that answer, and he clearly didn't know what to say. His view of Christmas and the Magi was probably more of the mythical idea than what actually happened. But here's my point in recounting this event. All searching that goes on for spiritual reality is tainted by sin. And all searching for spiritual reality needs the light of Scripture. Experience, signs, even visions cannot replace what is bedrock. And so Magi came to Jerusalem to consult theologians. Where is the Christ to be born, they said, and the answer is actually found among those who read the Bible. The theologians in Jerusalem quoted at least two Bible passages, but we're only going to look at one, and that's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judea, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. I find it fascinating that Micah says it was not just Bethlehem, but he says it was Bethlehem Ephrathah. There are, in fact, two different towns named Bethlehem in Israel. One is located in Galilee, called Bethlehem of Zebulun, and it's now a ruin, and it's been located about six miles northwest of Nazareth. But Micah designates specifically which one he has in mind. He's referring to Bethlehem Ephrathah. I'm always in awe at how specific some of the prophecies of the Bible actually are. Now, what Matthew records may have only been a sampling of the passages that were quoted to Herod and to the Magi that day. We don't know. We do know that the Jewish theologians had done a most thorough biblical analysis of the circumstances that surrounded the coming of the Messiah. They might have had a teaching seminar that day, which included the hope of the Messiah. No doubt Herod would have remained very quiet because he was hatching his own plans. But the theologians would have told everyone what would be expected when the Messiah actually came. He would be king of kings, and no doubt Herod would not have been pleased to hear that. Now Matthew tells us nothing about how it is that Mary and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem since both of them were from Nazareth. It's it's Luke that tells us the entire account. Matthew only tells us that they were there and that the only way in which the Magi could authenticate that they were on the right track was to consult someone who knew the Scripture. And by the way, I have had opportunities to interview people who have had visions of Jesus. It's especially true of people from the Middle East having Muslim backgrounds. Some of the accounts are staggering. I remember once teaching in the Middle East among a group of about 30 underground church leaders, and I found out that I was the only one in the room that had not had a vision of Jesus. But here's why I share this. The people I know who have had an extraordinary encounter have not found saving faith that way. They came to saving faith as someone explained the message of the Bible. And please don't miss the centrality of knowing and understanding God's Word. You can only and ultimately understand truth when you get back to the Bible. So let's get back to her account. According to Matthew, the star that the Magi saw at first now appears and seems to rest over the very house in Bethlehem where Mary and Joseph are staying. When the men of the East came into the house after they had been presented with a baby, Matthew says they fell down. I can imagine them on the floor, perhaps lying prostrate, face down on the floor. It would be the same posture one might assume when entering the throne room of a great king. But the matter doesn't end even there. They begin to worship him. And as we know, worship is a religious activity. It's an expression of honor, praise, and adoration to God alone. Well, you might say that might not be that special because these men were likely polytheists, men who were willing to integrate various religious beliefs into one. Well, perhaps. But remember this, Matthew is giving us this historical account to help us to see how the most unlikely of all people find the truth that they have longed for when they encounter Christ. So I strongly suspect that they had an inkling that this was the one creator God. Remember, that's Matthew's own story. He's a Jewish trader making money from the Roman occupation of Palestine. And when he encountered Jesus, he left his lucrative career and followed Jesus. Matthew understands these men. The point of the account of the Magi is that when they saw this baby, they not only recognized in him a future king, they saw God himself, and that's why they worshiped. Think again about the reaction to the birth of Jesus. Herod would see this as an unwelcome event the threat of a child that would assume a throne. And so he decides to murder the boys in Bethlehem. But in a year, he himself would be dead. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, those theologians and Bible teachers who knew all about proper doctrine of the Messiah, Matthew himself records how they eventually responded. They would eventually take leadership in slandering this Christ child. Eventually they would spread lies about him, and ultimately they would be responsible for nailing him to a cross And the unclean magi, they were overwhelmed with worship. And that's the unique irony of the story of Christmas. We find that the birth of Christ causes divisions among people. Some of the most surprising people will fall down in worship. And some of the people you might think should worship end up as enemies of Christ. And that continues to be the reaction to Christ today. To sum the idea that God came into this world is rejected and ridiculed, and to others, it's the hope of the world.
0: Thanks, John. Uh, You know, one of the things that comes to mind is the diversity of people that are involved in the Christmas story, and I'm sure that isn't by accident. We see all different types, people of different backgrounds, different ages perhaps, all coming to be impacted by this story. Uh, So, how do you see that sort of representing who we are today and, and what the Christmas story means to our society today?
1: We live in such a remarkable time in history. Um, you know, we are seeing the Christian faith moving from the Western world um, to places where you would never have expected to find Christian faith before. And it does remind us that the gospel of Christ seems to divide people. I think that's the story of the Magi. You know, there are people that you would have expected because of their exposure to the Bible would have been the first to welcome the Christ child. And I think if I were to put that into our perspective, there are people uh, in our culture because our culture has been saturated with the gospel for many years before we got here. And you would have expected that our culture would have been very open to the gospel. And yet we find in places like Iran and places like China and and places like northern India where there hasn't been a gospel, we find this explosion of the gospel. And it really does, I think, put the story of the Magi in context. People we would never expect to find their way to Christ have found their way there. And I think that's something to celebrate, especially as we seek to share the gospel with people that we might not expect to hear. This is a story of hope.
0: The Magi journeyed with many others to see the Messiah. They saw a bright star when he was born, a reminder to us that Jesus is the light of the world. When they saw Jesus, they fell to their knees to worship him, which is exactly the opportunity we're given as we consider the birth of the Son of God even today. I hope you've been blessed and challenged by this week's Christmas Unplugged series. Tomorrow, Dr. Newfeld will conclude this series by talking about the light of Jesus and how it will never be extinguished by the darkness. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. What a great message we've heard today. I hope it's made you more reflective and thankful for the truth about Christmas. As Christians, we celebrate the most amazing fact, along with millions of other believers around the world, the coming of our King. Through His great love and mercy, our Creator has chosen to step into this fallen world and redeem a people for Himself, for their good and His glory. Because He came, there is hope and purpose for all who believe in the good news of the Gospel. Isaiah 7:14 says, "Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel." Indeed, tomorrow we celebrate the fact that God is with us. So let's all take these words to heart this Christmas Eve. Behold, Emmanuel, God with us. God bless and merry Christmas from all of us at Back to the Bible Canada.